Several years ago, a couple of guys wrote a book that was called 100 Things to Do Before You Die. It was a travel guide of sorts about the places and the things that you ought to do before your life is over. And it inspired a whole bunch of other 100 things to do before this or that. There was even an award-winning movie, maybe you saw it with uh, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholas, The Bucket List. Two guys who thought they were going to die and who did some pretty wacky things in preparation for that. But back to the book by these two authors. Ironically, one of the guys who wrote the book, David Freeman, achieved only about half of the hundred things that he suggested everybody needed to do before they die. What happened is he fell in his California home and he died at the age of 47. Now, his writing buddy said it wasn't a heart attack and he he wasn't really physically incapable. He's not the sort of person that would fall over. He just did, and he died. In their book, the two authors towards the beginning wrote these words. This life is a short journey. How can you make sure you'll fill it with the most fun and that you visit all the coolest places on earth before you pack those bags for the very last time. Unfortunately, Dave didn't have his his bags packed before his very last time. But the truth is, you you really never know what your next day is going to hold. Now, that's not something that Dave Freeman wrote. It's the words of an Old Testament proverb that may have been a little bit of the inspiration for what James has to say to us today. Proverbs 27.1 puts it this way. Don't brag about tomorrow since you don't know what that day will bring. Now be honest. If a year and a half ago somebody had told you that we were going to have this last year that we have experienced almost now exactly a whole year together, would you have believed them? that we would have been living behind masks and lining up for vaccines and being separated from each other in so many different ways. But the truth is, life can turn on a dime. You wreck your car and your life all at the same time. You, You go on a vacation to a tropical paradise and a tsunami comes in and wipes everything out. Or you go to your doctor's office and The doctor says, I'm sorry to have to give you this news, but you've got cancer. How do you deal with the fact that you, you really aren't sure what tomorrow holds? Well, some of us just pretend. Some of us just pretend that bad things will never happen. Some of us, when they do happen, just deny that they have ever happened. And when they do, we just kind of get more and more overwhelmed by what that might be. But let me ask you this, how are we as believers supposed to respond to challenges that come in our life? How do we practically, in a blue jeans sort of way, live this out? How do we face this current moment? Now, it's interesting because I almost thought about maybe for today just retitling our series, The Coronavirus Theology, because in a sense, it does speak to our moment but we got enough that we've heard about that, so I'll just let James provide the counsel on his own. But the, the question that we're going to ask ourselves this morning is, what about tomorrow? 
Well, James in chapter 4, verse 13, starts to help answer that question in this way. Look here, he says, you who say today or tomorrow we are going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year and make a profit. How do you know what your, what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It is here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live or do this or that. Otherwise, he says, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans, and all such boasting is evil. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that there are two different routes that we can go when we face this uncertainty in life. One of them is governed by our human pride, and the other is more all about divine trust. Let me help see how James has set up this scenario for the first. He imagines these traveling businessmen. And the the sense of the text is that these are very likely people from the church. These are believers who are going out on on their business venture. And they have a plan. And their plan is that today or tomorrow they will travel on their trip. Now, they give themselves a little bit of wiggle room because we've all, you know, you realize you can't predict everything. So they say, "Eh, today or tomorrow. But they have a clear sense, a very clear sense about the place where they're going to travel. It's a certain town, a point on a map. They have a timetable. They say they will stay there a year. And they even are confident about the outcome. They are going to make a profit They have very carefully and thoughtfully made their plan. So, is there anything wrong with planning? Is it a a bad thing? Is James trying to tell us that you shouldn't make plans or that you shouldn't even somehow try to to make or anticipate a profit? I I don't think that's, that's what he's trying to say. You probably at some time dreamed about this building or you thought about your house or you've made some long-range plans about your business. You may have even established timelines and anticipated some outcomes. I don't think that James is saying just wander blindly through life. In fact, it probably is a good thing to have a good plan. In fact, we might even say that it's a a wise thing. And you could find some proverbs that that would agree with that. James' warning for us is in that first path that we can take. He says, if this attitude about the future is rooted in human pride, that's where we get into trouble. James begins with this focus on the human part, and with a warning, he says, because we are human, there are certain limitations that we have. Bluntly, here's what he says. You very likely could die tomorrow. Your life, he says, is like the morning fog. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. Wasn't that a pleasant thought? (laughs) Especially in the middle of all this coronavirus pandemic that we're in, when it seems like almost every day we watch our governors tell us how many people are sick and how many people have died. I literally walk by rooms of people in the work that I do as a chaplain in the hospital, and I see people that have come in one day and seem to be not in too bad a shape, and the next day they're in intensive care and on a ventilator, and the fog comes in and burns off, and the life is not at all like what it would be. 
I promise we'll get to the good part in a little bit, but we've got to get through the bad part before we can get to the good part. George Bernard Shaw one time said, the statistics of death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. If you are the exception, you are not only the rare exception, you are the impossible exception. You and I one day are going to die. So all of our planning, however careful it is, needs to understand that our lives are fragile, painfully so. Psalm 90, maybe you've read that one. It says, 70 years are given to us. Some even live to 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, so they'll disappear and we'll fly away. (laughs) That's pleasant. We might live for a long time, but we're going to be miserable uh, through the end of it. Um, I had a good friend who one time said that when he hit 80 and went beyond that, that he was living on the bonus. And I've always, I've always liked that. You know, you, you have something of uh, a, a prediction, but it's not forever. So in the spirit of this passage, <clears throat> as I was going through these verses, I thought I would, I'd try to figure out how long I might live. And I looked in some different places. Maybe you've done this. The actuary tables of the Social Security Administration was where I started. And they said... You answer a few questions on there that I could live to 84.9 years. Now, that 0.9 is important for me because that means that means uh, you got to keep it on there. That's 16.2 more years of life. I don't like that, but that, that's what it says. Now, there's a footnote in there and says all kinds of variables, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And it could increase and decrease it. But, you know, 85, I'll round it up. Is a, is a not-so-bad number. Well, I went to bankrate.com in their website, and my expiration date there was 82 years. Now, that's down three years from the Social Security, so that bothered me a little bit. So I'm sticking with Social Security uh, number for here a little while. Pushing on in my quest, trying to find some more years, I went to a place called Blueprint Income, and they said that I had a 75% chance of living to 81. Now, that's... years than most other people, so I thought that was was pretty good. I must have answered all my health questions pretty well. And it did add, helping me out a little bit, that I had a 50% chance of making it to 89. That's better. And a 25% odds of reaching 94. So that was was good. Well, I was still pressing on, so I went to John Hancock. You know, John Hancock... uh, it's, it's named after a, a brave early American leader, thought probably they'd have something going for them. And they just gave me, when I filled out their stuff, one single rounded number that said that I might live until I'm 91. So I thought, okay, I, I'll just take that good unqualified number from them, and I'll think about that 25% odds that I might be able to add three more years to my life. But however... However you figure out or try to anticipate how long you're going to live, it's only life expectancy. It's not life guarantee, right? Health, habits, accidents, cancers, coronavirus, have you got your shot yet? You know, all those kinds of things that have variables on how we live. James warns that if we presume, we really put ourselves in trouble. Our life is fragile like the fog evaporated with the heat of the morning. We might go through 50 of those 100 things that you must do before you die, or you may not even get to 10 of them. What, Peter seems to be, uh, what uh, James seems to be 
uh, describing here is that presumptuousness of being the kind of person who says, I will do this, I will do that, I will get this, I will get that, this plan will lead to this and that. The truth is, James tries to help us understand, is we just do not know. Somebody else echoing the same sentiment of George Bernard Shaw said, on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Sort of the same thing as what he was saying. We're all going to die. But there's nothing wrong with a, a good plan. It's a wise thing. But just keep in mind that you may not get to where you think you will, and you may not live long enough to be able to pull anything of it off. Life is fragile. There's a story Jesus told one time about a man, a rich man. It's over in Luke chapter 12. He had a good harvest, and his barns were not near big enough to be able to hold all that he had. So he thought to himself, what I need to do is just tear down my old barns and build bigger barns, and then I'll be able to store it all away, and everything will be set for life. He says to himself in the story, you have enough stored up for years to come. And he reassures himself saying, now just take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. He had a good plan at the time. But God speaks in this parable to that rich man. And he calls him, I know you probably aren't supposed to say this, but I guess God can say what he wants. He says, you are a fool. Harsh, great plan about all those barns. But the fact is, you're going to die this very night. Just like that guy in the book. You're going to trip and fall, and you are going to be done. And you'll never get all those 50 further things that you'd like to have. And he goes on and includes this postscript in the parable. He says, then who will get everything you've worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Life is fragile, and I need to not be so proud as to think that I can possess it on and on. But also I need to realize in this proud spectrum that it's not really all about me, mine, and myself. There's a phrase that some of us may have grown up with in the old days, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. And I, when I came by the golf course today, I thought, why did I put this in the sermon? That, that guy that I talked to you about who talked about living on the bonus when he got past 80, he called me one morning in the first ministry that I was in, a little church in the mountains of East Tennessee, and he said, Preacher, I'm not going to be able to make it to church today. He said that the river had caught off, cut off his house. It had been one of these nights where we'd had just a cloud burst like we'd had here. And I, I got in my car and I drove over. And before I even got close to his house, I could hear the roar of the water, the Nolichucky River that flowed by there. It had not only cut his house off, it had cut some other houses down and it had felled the big giant radio tower for our city on down to the ground. In fact, it recharted the whole course of that river it went back, I guess, to maybe where it had been somewhere in the past. You could say on that day, the creek did rise. No one expected that that was what the morning was going to be like. Now, my friend's life was not ruined. His house was spared, and finally they got everything back together again. Until one day in the morning, 
some years after that, he got in his car and he drove outside of town to a fruit stand alongside of the road to buy something. And as he was pulling out after his purchase, it was evening and the sun was beginning to set. And as he looked off in the direction of the sun, he was blinded by the light and he pulled right out in front of a car that T-boned him and took his life. I went to his house with his son after I heard the word. And there on his chair where he got up every morning were his reading glasses and his, his Bible. He had begun his day with God and he had ended his day with God in a fuller way than he ever had imagined. I don't think God greeted him with the declaration that he was a fool. I think he probably said something like, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, sometimes you survive the flood and sometimes you die in the car crash. For James, the issue wasn't about having a well-planned life. It wasn't about thinking about what the future holds. He just wants us to possess some sense of humility, not to be captured by our human pride. And then, here, here we come to the good part. He encourages us toward divine trust, which is the other path that we can take when life is uncertain. We talked about the creek don't rise, but at the beginning of it was that condition, the good Lord willing. Did you ever say that? The good, I'll, be, I'll do this, whatever. The good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Proverbs, uh, well, James goes on to say here, he says, if the Lord wants us to do well, we will live, if, if, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, he says, we are boasting about our own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. Well, the book of Proverbs says in sixteen nineteen, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. There is the human plane and there is the divine plane. And ultimately, we need to realize that God is God and we are not. Or as Thomas Kempis one time said, man proposes, but God disposes. You see, the, the challenge is if we take that first path that's filled with pride, we will find ourselves not appreciating that better path of divine trust. We confuse ourselves with God, and his will for our lives does not become primary James says, this is what we ought to say. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants, if the Lord wills, if it is his desire and design for our life, it is the awareness of our humble dependence upon God, about his sovereignty, something that the leaders of the early church evidently grasped, perhaps because they were so little removed from the time of Jesus and took their cue from him. Do you remember in his model prayer where Jesus one time said, may your will be done on earth to his father as it is in heaven. It was the dark night of his soul. And in that prayer, he had said, my father, if it is possible, this is what he wanted on the human level. If it is possible, let the cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. More than once, the Apostle Paul, in some of his writings, would talk about the plans that he had for his life, but it would be conditioned. Once when he was leaving Ephesus, he said, I will come back later, 
God willing. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, he said, I will come and soon if the Lord lets me. When's the last time you brashly said you were going to do this or that and then added to it these thoughtful words, if the Lord is willing? It's interesting that in the the days of the early life of the church, there came to be known something what, what was called the Jacobian condition. Uh, now, Jacob was the name for James, was the, the, the interchange back and forth. And so the Jacobian condition, in other words, it was if God wills. And the concept drifted on into the Latin church, the Roman church, and the Latin words deo valente, which means God wills, was often spoken and written in discourse In fact, it had a shorthand form where they would just write the abbreviation DV. And it even carried over to the Puritans and to the Methodists under Wesley's influence that they would sometimes write or sign their letters with those initials DV. It wasn't that it was saying that we should not plan, but it always reminded us God willing. There was a consciousness of God having influence in our life. It was the opposite of human bragging. It was an expression of human dependence. That'd be kind of interesting to do that, wouldn't it? People wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about if you put DV, unless they tell them to watch a sermon online or something, and they'll read it, and they'll figure that out. But what would happen if everything that we did, somehow, we at least in our brain, wrote down God willing, D-V. So, how are we supposed to face the uncertainty of these moments? Does it mean that we don't try to find a cure and develop a plan and work our way through what we are? Does it mean that we find ourselves paralyzed or terrorized? No, I don't think. To put it very specifically, what does James 4 have to say about COVID-19 and all those other uncertainties in life? I don't think it means don't try to pilot our way through this, but it does encourage us to live, to choose to live a life of trust. To lead our lives with the understanding that we ultimately are not in control, but that God is is, and that his will and his purpose is grander than our own. Now, I have a lot of respect for the CDC or the FDA or on the national, the world uh, uh, plane, the WHO, or any other kind of initial places that you come up with, but let me suggest that each of us have a lot of trust in the DV, God's will. Deo Valente. Now, there are some people that will say in a glib way, well, if God wills, but they don't live like it. They, they parrot the words, and maybe that's the case for us. We, we talk and we say that we understand that God's will needs to prevail, but we just don't live our lives as if he did. Now, I'm not going to quit planning. I like to plan. I think churches need to plan, but neither am I going to assume that I have all the answers for my future. Well, there's one last thing I need to add, and that is there's, that, there's a verse on the tail end of this that 
almost seems like a foreign patch in the fabric of this text. And perhaps it's meant to stand alone. You could preach a whole sermon on that. It's verse 17. But it says, remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. We've called that sometimes that we shouldn't do commit the sins of omission. The things that we know we need to do and we don't do. But since this verse, 17, is the caboose for what we just read before, maybe there is some kind of connection to it. Maybe James is trying to say to us, if you know God's will and that his should be primary in your life and you don't live your life like that, it's a sin. Or here's another way. Maybe when you make your plans and all those kind of things you do in life, you put a big asterisk on there. And the asterisk is to remind you, much like that DV would, that everything is dependent upon God's will. Someone has said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Bob Pierce is the founder, was the founder of World Vision, a tremendous humanitarian agency. And at the end of his life, he'd, he'd helped just millions of people in the world. At the end of his life, someone asked how he accounted for what God had been able to do through him. And early on, he said he learned to pray this simple prayer. Lord, I give you the right to change my agenda anytime you like without informing me in advance. That's divine trust. Go ahead, make your plans, make a list of the hundred things that you want to do before you die. That's okay. Just don't forget that ultimately your life is fragile and God's will is what's so much important. In the middle of all this pandemic, James does have something to say in his blue jeans theology. Don't take the road of human pride. Follow the path of divine trust. Let's pray. God, we are proud, bullheaded, confident, thinking we are wise people too much of our lives. And perhaps we do have some good ideas and we can make some good plans, but we confess to you that uh, a lot of times we do that without thought of you. And so help us to hear what James has uh, taught us today about what we do about tomorrow, especially when that tomorrow is filled with uncertainty. I thank you for the confidence in knowing that you care about us and that you love us and that you want the best for us. And it's in that hope that we place our trust in you.